Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Well, today I want to open in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says this, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And I wanted to talk about um, the, the understanding and the answer we have for our hope. It says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Now, just, just those two words, Christ, we just think, what's well, another name for Jesus? And Lord, well, another name for Jesus. But it says, set apart Christ as Lord. Lord, and, and we do, we will say, Lord, I, I, you know, when we pray and we, we, we refer to him as Lord, but what is a Lord? What does it mean? If we're setting apart Christ as Lord, it means we're giving him the authority in our lives. A Lord is someone who has authority over another. And what this scripture is reminding us, it says we need to give Jesus the authority in our lives. He needs to have that authority. Now, as I had been preparing and planning on this message for quite some time, and then this week um, I was just listening to, to what's happening around the world. And how many of you have noticed Afghanistan making it to the news? Um, there are reports of, of Christians being persecuted that are coming out of their, and on one hand, you can hear that and you can say, wow, there's crazy things happening on the other side of the globe. And in one sense, it's easy to, to, to be a little desensitized to it, to, to be able to take it in stride. And that's a good thing. On one hand, it's good that, that every single thing doesn't feel personal. Because how many of you realize somebody's mother died today? And if we were as emotionally impacted as that somebody, we would just be destroyed all the time. However, however, it is real and we are called to do something. I, I have personally witnessed persecution. How, how many of you would say you, you have seen persecution for the gospel? How many of you have witnessed it? And most of us should have our hands up because it depends on, I didn't say how bad the persecution needed to be. Some of us were like, well, you know, I mean, they called me names for being a Christian, but, you know, I've never seen someone shot. Um, I have a friend who has a bullet in his back. He was shot, and the bullet is still there because he's a Christian. I have stood in churches that were burnt down because the surrounding community didn't want them to continue to preach the gospel. I have seen those things. My father has been chased out of towns with machetes. 
because he was trying to preach the gospel. I know some of those things from a personal standpoint, but then I'm also, just along with you, I'm watching and I'm hearing things in the news and I'm, I'm catching whether you know, your social media may make mention of, of one thing or another. And you know, I can't speak to the validity of every single thing you heard. But I can say I know people personally. An example would be Robbie Dawkins is someone who I've met on multiple occasions. He's come and he spoke at, at church, and he has personally told the stories of the Christians that are trying to flee from Afghanistan right now because their faith puts them at risk. Because, and, and I want to say this, we say the Taliban. And then we immediately get pictures that we've seen on the news of the individuals who associate them, who call themselves the Taliban, and, and, and think about that. But I, I want you to be clear about something. Who is our fight against, according to Scripture? The Bible says, in Ephesians 6.12, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we talk about the persecution that is taking place, when we talk about the different regimes that are being used by Satan for negative impact, we are not against those people. How many of you have a physical Bible with you right now? Hold it up. Do you remember who wrote most of the New Testament? Paul. If Paul, if we had met Paul back when they called him Saul, he would have fit the description of what the Taliban is doing right now. He was going around, he was trying to persecute Christians for their beliefs. And he encountered God. I want to encourage you as Christians to pray that the people who are persecuting Christians would have experiences like Paul. We want to pray protection over those Christians that are there. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we don't, we don't pray uh, violence against those who are trying to do violence against them. We recognize that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against the principalities and powers that come against the, the expansion of God's kingdom around the world. It, it is, as, as a church body, I want to encourage you, pray. Pray that God would supernaturally protect the Christians who are there the people who've made it known that they stand with God, who have made Jesus Christ their Lord. And it's, it's, it's interesting to think right now on the other side of the world, there are people who they have to get up and decide if I stand for what I believe in today, it may cost me my health or even my life. 
Whereas you and I, most of us have not had to make that change, that decision. Right, one of my questions, and I think that it's a question we should all ask ourselves when we, when we consider persecution, is what, what does my faith mean to me? Psalms 119 verses 105 through 107 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, and I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. The Bible says that it is to be, his word is to be a light unto your path. When do you need a light? When it's dark. When you don't know where to go without the light, you take the light and it shows you where to put your next step. The Bible says that is what Scripture is to be to you and I. How many of us consult God's Word regarding our decisions? How many of us consult God's Word, period? I I looked up a, uh, a chart recently. Can you put that one up, the one I just emailed this morning? This is a list of... Um, religious traditions and how much they read the scripture. The first bar there is showing you how many people read at least once a week. Um, Buddhists are 28%, Catholics are 25%, evangelical Protestants. If you didn't know, that's probably what we would be described as. Protestant being Christian that is not uh, Catholic, evangelical being that believes in um, the full gospel and the Holy Spirit. Evangelical, 63%. Way to go. But you know what? There's two people on the list that beat us. The Jehovah's Witness is at 88% and the Mormons at 77 um, Then there's a few other lists on there. Orthodox, uh, Christians, 29%, unaffiliated. Anyway, I, I show that because that's just once a week. 63% of evangelical Christians are reading their scripture once a week. And how many of you know when they were taking that thing, they were like, wait a minute, I got that one thing on my wall. I read that scripture at least one. You you know that everybody self-reported is as, as high as they could. My question is, not just how often do you read it, but do you look to it for your answers? If, if Scripture tells you what to do, do you choose that? Or do you, do you say, well, that's one of many options. The Bible says that we are to make Christ, the anointed one, the Lord of our life. God's Word should be the number one influence in our life. Number one. And, and, and I look and I am, I am personally moved as I hear the stories of persecution around the world and people who are risking life and limb 
to stand by what the scripture says. And I can almost hear people asking, how do I know that I can trust my life to that book? How do I know that the Bible is trustworthy? Vodi Bakum described the Bible this way. He said, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim to be divine rather than human in origin. The Bible itself says this about itself. Psalms 119, 160, all your words are true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God-breathed. The Bible is unlike any book ever compiled, ever. It's made up of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years. There are more than 40 individual people who God used to write. Most of them, I mean, the disciples knew each other, but if we go from Genesis to Revelation, many of them didn't know each other. Most, in fact. They came from different social backgrounds. It was written in three different, on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The common thread is how a sinful, rebellious human race can become right with a holy and perfect God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, what evidence? If I just take the Bible and I say, is it worth trusting my life to this? Why would I trust my life to this instead of anything else. One of the first things that we would come to would be for evidence that the Bible is special would be prophetic evidence. Because if the Bible is true, if it is the word of God, then, then the prophecies that it contains would come true. How many of you agree? Let's read a passage from Psalms 22, written 1,044 years before Jesus was born. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says, all you who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 7 through 8 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was 1,044 years before Jesus was born. What are they describing? The crucifixion. 
Now, were they just describing a crucifixion that they had recently seen and then later Jesus would happen to be crucified and then it would all fit together? No, crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. Hundreds and hundreds of years. He says that his hands and feet are pierced. The writer of Psalms had no context for that. None at all. They were simply writing what God had inspired them to write that came true 1,044 years later. We read that and we're like, oh, it's like he was there. He knew that the hands and feet were pierced, that his bones were visible because he was whipped with a cat of nine tails. Forty lashes minus one. You know why they said it that way? Because at that time, 40 lashes was considered a, a death sentence. 39 wasn't. So you could be legally lashed 39 times and not considered to have been sentenced to death. His skin was missing. You could see his bones. Micah 5.2 700 years in advance prophesies that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, hundreds of years in advance, prophesies that Jesus would be born of a virgin. What are the chances that those would come to pass? There are over 60 major prophecies regarding Jesus in the Old Testament. There are 300 if you count every single one. Of the 60 major prophecies that come, that are made about Jesus, by the way, they all come true. If you take just eight of the major prophecies, eight, a statistician did the math and they said, if you filled the entire state of Texas two feet deep, in silver dollars. How many of you can kind of picture even just two feet deep of silver dollars here on the stage? That's, that's a lot of silver dollars. That is one to the 10 to the 17th power. One out of one and then 17 zeros. So if you fill the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, then send somebody blindfolded in to go pick out one marked silver dollar, and in their first try, they get it right. Those are the statistical probabilities of eight of those major prophecies being fulfilled, and more than that were. Can I trust that God's word is inspired by God? I can. Another interesting aspect when, when valid, validating a work is to look at the eyewitnesses. The early followers of Jesus had nothing to gain and everything to lose by claiming what they did. There's no reason to suppose the writers of the New Testament would fabricate those events. Now here... How many of you have kids? If I was to say, how many of you have ever been lied to, all the same hands would be standing up. 
Because at one point or another, kids try out this concept of telling a lie. Now, what's more trustworthy? If, if all the cookies are missing and there are two kids and one of them says, I ate some. How many of you think he's lying? If he knows he wasn't supposed to, and he knows he's going to get in trouble, but he says, I ate some. Or another kid says, wasn't me. Which one do you put more trust in? When someone incriminates themselves, when someone admits something that they're not likely to be proud of or celebrated for, how many of you recognize that increases their trustability? That is what the disciples did. They, they said things that if they weren't true, would have made them look ridiculous. The disciples wrote about the feeding of the 5,000. Those 5,000 and their kids were still around. If they had claimed that Jesus had fed 5,000, but that's not what happened, how many of you realize people would have said something? The the. The disciples talked many times about things that, that didn't make sense in their culture. The disciples talk about not believing that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And then, who were the first witnesses of Jesus raised from the dead? How many of you remember who that was? It was Mary Magdalene. It was the women. Now, just if you lived in a culture where women were not treated as equals and you were writing a fictional story trying to convince someone of Jesus' resurrection, would you have chosen a person whose testimony may not have been submissible in court to be the first witness? If that was your goal, if you were making this up, if you were trying to do... No, you wouldn't. But that's what happened. That's what happened. The resurrection... Of, of Jesus Christ. Someone, someone made an acrostic. They said evidence for the resurrection. Um, women's testimony at that time was considered nothing in the first century. The other eyewitnesses, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it tells us about that. Nearly every one of the disciples was martyred for what they claimed. 
again. If they were really trying to create an elaborate ruse, why, why wouldn't they have just admitted it was, it was fake? No, they died for what they believed. Prior to the resurrection, the disciples were afraid. After the resurrection, they became courageous preachers of the gospel in face of persecution. And then there are many, many, many non-biblical sources that reference the things that are written about in Scripture. The endurance of the Bible. Think some of those things, I want to, just a few of the examples... Peter talks about denying Jesus three times. The disciples' description of themselves is very cowardly. Peter was called Satan by Jesus. The disciples are constantly not understanding Jesus' teachings. They doubted. But the Bible doesn't shy away from telling their stories or David's mistakes over and over. The Bible even rebukes the church leaders. There are lots of unpleasantries being shared in the Scripture because that is what happened. That would not be the way you would write if you were trying to make something up. No other book has been as dissected, as critiqued, as banned, as burned, and ridiculed as the Bible has. But no other book has motivated more people. No other book has been has had more people try to discredit it. Yet the Bible stands today, having sold more copies than any other book in history. And there's also the archaeological evidence for the Bible. It's interesting how many times it has been said that something about the Bible was inaccurate. There was a time when the Hittites, how many remember the Hittites, along with all the other ites in the Bible? The Hittites were said to be you know, not non-existent. Oh, the Bible talks about them, but we don't see them anywhere in history. Isaiah 20, verse 1, claimed, says, in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Eshad and attacked it and captured it. And they looked and said, nope, that didn't happen. And then they found the city and they found references to that very thing. It wasn't that the Bible was wrong. It was just that archaeology hadn't caught up with it yet. Over and over. His name wasn't known, but they found it in Iraq. The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 also verify the validity of the Old Testament manuscripts. The Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden in a cave for over 2,000 years. Now, it's interesting. Were you able to pull the pictures there's a picture of me by a desert background and then just the background. This, this right here, hold that. This is one, that spot right there is one of the caves that held the most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But then in the surrounding mountain areas, there were, there were tons more. Um, I think they have one picture where I'm, I'm actually there. You can see the cave in the background. An interesting fact that I learned when, when I visited there is when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they realized that a group of, of um, people had been, been hiding Scripture 
in caves. And so that was where they found one of the big ones. But then they sent, they sent locals out to look, and they, they gave a, what's the, a bounty. They said, for every old manuscript that you bring us, we'll pay you. Now, if you guys remember, we talked about how some of the, the manuscripts were, were fragments. Because when something is that old, sometimes you know, a piece of it has, has rotted or, or something like that. And the, 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 the locals would go out there and they would, they would scour around. They'd look in all the caves they knew about. They'd find these, these pieces and they'd bring it back in and they would get paid for what they found. And then the archaeologists realized, we're getting fragments, but some of these, you know, the fragments, they all fit together so quickly and nicely with, with very little wear. You know what was happening? If you get paid per piece, and there's no prize for big pieces, then they would find it, take it, turn it tear it into two pieces, and give it to them. And then they'd put it back together. And so they quickly realized, well, we need to change the way that we're paying this. But to me, at first when I heard that they were getting all of these little pieces, I was like, man, what a bummer. Why weren't any of them whole? Well, that's why. But the good news is that they fit right back together because they were only ripped like 15 minutes before they were handed in. Some of them. Some of them were genuinely uh, fragments. But I, I found that very interesting. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that, that old copies from long before Jesus was even born matched the scripture that was there. If we look at the traditions that are passed on, it is so interesting how the, the Hebrew scribes in the amount of attention to detail. How is it that Scripture was protected? God looked over it. Pastor Emily talked two weeks ago and, and, and quoted the Scripture about how God watches over His Word and how the, the practices that they would use and how they would discard any copy that became damaged or marred and then they would, they would make copy. And any copy... So, I don't know about you, but... You know, if I write something out and I make a mistake, I'm known to like scribble and then, you know, you know anybody ever put the little carrot in there? It's like, this is supposed to be there. You know, you, you spelled there with the I and the E in the wrong spot, so you just scribble one and, and kind of put it over there. Or No. The, the Hebrew scribes, if they made one mistake, hand copying the whole thing, they had to scratch it and start over again. So... If that was the case, and it was, then the copies were shockingly identical to each other. We, we looked last week, or two weeks ago, which, by the way, we missed you guys last week. We were uh, visiting my in-laws up north. It was my wife's birthday. We had a good time. Um, but I was online watching service with you guys it's just like, I, I missed you guys. It's good to be here. But two weeks ago, when we were here, um, Pastor Emily put up a, a chart showing the scripture. Do we have 
um, the biblical manuscripts compared to select ancient sources. She had, um, there are two of them. There's a second one. Yeah, that's the one. Um, putting this up, pointing out the gaps between all of these others, and we see here some of the things to notice. Ancient, famous ancient things, Julius Caesar and Homer and Plato and all of these things, um, the time between when it was written and the oldest found copy is 150, 450, 300, 1,300, 900, 800, 800, 400 to 1,500, 30 to 300 years for the Scripture. It is the shortest gap. When we look at the number of, of ancient copies that we can compare it to, you have the winner out of all. We've got like 10 copies of Aristophanes. We have um, 33 copies of Tacitus. We have 100 copies of her. Plato has 200-something copies. Homer is the winner with 1,800 until you look at the New Testament, 5,800. And then when we look at others, there's 18,000 more if you include non-Greek Old Testament manuscripts. We, we ask ourselves, is the Bible something I can trust? As I, as I said before, we open up and we look at what is happening around the world and people who are sacrificing and, and risking their lives. I want us as Christians to recognize God's word is worth standing up for. God's word is trustworthy. It has proven itself. You know, people have, have tried to attack Scripture by, by claiming that it was unscientific. But Isaiah 40 says that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Isaiah knew that the world was a globe long before the rest of, of, of Western culture caught up. Job, literally the oldest book in the Bible, says he stretches the northern sky over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Job talks about the water cycle. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds and the clouds don't burst with weight. For he draws up the waters, they distill his mist in the rain, and the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. That's Job. First, oldest book written. Luke prophesies. This is, this is Luke, written in the time of Jesus, allegedly before it was widely understood that the earth is a globe and that it's daytime in the U.S. when it's nighttime in China. But it says here, at the second coming Jesus will, of Jesus will occur while some are asleep at night and others are working in the field in the daytime. 
when, when God prophesied, he prophesied to people things that were beyond their understanding. But they wrote them down anyway. When, when Luke prophesied, what he would have learned in elementary school, that wouldn't have made sense. How can people be sleeping at night in their beds and other people working in the day in their fields at the same time in the twinkling of an eye? How does that happen? Well, you and I understand it. Luke didn't understand it, but you know what he did? He wrote down what God said. The Bible is impressive. Virtually the entire, here's just, I'm just going to throw out, right before I go, I'm just going to throw out some interesting things. Virtually the entire New Testament can be reproduced from quotations of the early fathers. Um, 32,000 such quotations exist before the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to say something. How many of you have ever heard it said that the Bible was compiled in 325 AD at the Church of Nicaea. Or someone, perhaps someone from the Catholic Church says, we created your Bible. You ever heard that one? This is interesting. Because what they're referring to is that in 325 AD, there was a group from the church that got together and officially recognized the Bible, the list of books that we acknowledge, continue to acknowledge today as the Bible. What most of us imagine, what most of us imagine is that this group of people got together, put out every ancient document as an option that they had, and said, all right, who, let's, let's vote on it. Which ones are in, which ones are out? Right, And that at the end of this meeting, that group of people had decided what was Bible and what wasn't. That's not what happened. They didn't decide. They simply affirmed. See, years and years before then, the list is already seen. What they did was they recognized, as, as time went on, they started to say, you know, we all recognize, the church recognizes what books have been inspired. But there may come a day when people will start to question which ones are which. Let's make it clear what is obvious to us today so that down the way it is not confusing to others later. The list of the Bible that was, that was approved by that council was approved unanimously. How many of you have ever tried to pick what to watch on television between two people? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, back in the day, it was like, I want to watch television. There's, there was, I remember my TV had like we lived in the country. We got like four channels. So you just went. You had like two options always stunk. There was only like two channels that had any possibility of being interesting. And we'd just pick one of the two. 
Now, it's like anything. And it takes us longer to decide. <laughs> the Bible was already recognized. Those books were already there. The list that they approved exists and was already found in writing decades before that council. There are 32,000 quotations of those scriptures in early writings all before that council. To me, that was really eye-opening to understand that God had already made it obvious to the church that he was speaking to them through those scriptures. Today, we measure the, the validity of scriptures, and we still, we saw that chart, we have lots of old documents. One of the reasons we don't have more old documents is because of the way that scribes protected God's word. And at that time, they didn't want the oldest document. They wanted the clearest, um, validated copy. So when a copy got old, instead of putting it there saying, oh, an archaeologist is going to love finding this a thousand years from now, they would, they would ensure that they had a copy letter for letter because they would count every line and make sure that every line had the same number of letters as the other so that even spelling mistakes were, were eliminated and, and they would confirm it completely and then they would destroy the older copy now that they had a, 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 a good one. Anyway, we can keep going. There is so much more, but there are external references throughout history to the Old Testament, to the, to the historical things that, that we find referenced in Scripture. There is prophetical uh, or prophetic proof that, that God's word is not just any old thing, but that God brought statistically impossible things into reality. God's word isn't just any old book. I can trust that God's word is the inspired word of God. And what does that mean? That means I can base my decisions on it. See, that's, that's the big step. So many people, I think it's 67% of Christians still believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But sadly, nowhere near 67% of us are basing all of our decisions on it. I want to encourage you. I want to double-dog dare you to base your decisions on God's word. If God says this is the right thing to do, even if it costs me, that's what I want to do. If God says, this is how I'm to live my life, this is how I'm to treat other people, this is what I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to give, I'm supposed to share, I'm supposed to be kind, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to. Will you? Will you? 
I want to end in a moment of prayer for the church around the world and specifically those in Afghanistan. How many of you will do that with me? All right? Let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in places specifically in Afghanistan but others like it where they are risking their lives, their families, their livelihoods to remain committed to you and to your word. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would provide them um, with, with your peace. Lord, we pray that you would hide them from those who desire to do them harm. Lord, we pray that even as they are hidden, that they would be a light that brings people to you. Lord, we just speak blessing, provision, protection, peace, wholeness. We declare health to them. Lord, we also lift up the people who are persecuting them. Lord, when you were hanging on the cross, you looked and you said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, we pray that you too would be able, that you would forgive these people as well because they don't understand what they do. Lord, I pray that you would bring people to them. Lord, we pray that there would be Damascus Road experiences where these people who are currently persecuting you would see you and recognize that they are on the wrong side, Lord, and that they would desire to come to know you. Lord, we pray for them. We pray that the blinders on their eyes would be we taken back, that would fall off. Lord, we pray that they would see your love even in the people who they are trying to persecute, that you would touch their hearts. Lord, we pray that you would blind their eyes when they are about to find someone and do them harm. Lord, we just pray that protection. We thank you for our brothers and sisters who are there. We ask that you would touch our hearts with what touches yours. Lord, and I pray that you would remind us how we can follow through on what you have put in our hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, I want to just take a moment and say, if you know that your sins are forgiven, if you know that the promise of salvation that is found in Scripture is yours, I want to ask you to raise your hand. The Bible tells us that we can know that we have salvation. If you saw these hands went up and you thought to yourself, how do they know? I mean, I hope, but how do they know? God's word says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus died on the cross and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. You can know. And I want to invite you to know that. The Bible says you do it by believing and confessing. So we will just speak a prayer of confession of what we believe. And if we know it and believe it in our heart, if we ask for that forgiveness, God promises to give it. So if you're here and you want to do that, or if you're watching online or listening somewhere and you want to participate, take a moment with your eyes closed. If that's you, raise your hand and we're going to pray together. If you're watching or listening online, just repeat after me. Everyone here, I invite you to repeat with me, even if you've done it before. Say, Dear God, Dear 
I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And he rose from the dead. I choose to make you the Lord of my life. You are the standard to which I strive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. If that was you, please let us know. Send us a message. If you're here today, come on down. I have a gift I'd like to give you. If you're online, you contact us. Let us know you prayed that prayer. We'll get you that same gift digitally. 